0: building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group, Just text the two words PROMISE KEEPERS to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text PROMISE KEEPERS to 31996.
1: Today we're talking to Dr. A.R. Bernard, uh, board member of Promise Keepers, one of the great conservative Christian leaders of the church today, powerful voice in the city of New York, uh, somebody who was in the nation of Islam before he gave his life to Christ. He's lived lived a really diverse background uh, before he got to Christ, and since he's come to Christ, he hasn't conformed to what most people think he should conform to. So we're going to talk about how do we as Christian men and women live for Christ in a way that doesn't get us stuffed into a box, but we're truly walking with Christ, despite our backgrounds, not in spite of it. So A.O. Bernard, you're on the board of Promise Keepers. You gave what I have heard from many people as one of the greatest um, addresses on racial reconciliation back in the 90s in the stadium days. I've heard many people say, "Man, you, you gotta you gotta listen to the AR address on racial reconciliation." And uh, it, it's awesome because you're going to be doing it again this year. So at the relaunch of Promise Keepers, you're going to be—I guess spoiler—because we haven't announced speakers yet—but you're going to be speaking on that subject in your own unique way. And uh, I'm I'm excited to see that. I can't wait to see what you're going to say. Me too because there's a lot of weight i just put on your shoulders
2: yeah i appreciate that i remember at the (laughs) gathering with promise keepers on on the mall in washington you know uh what million the first million man (laughs) gathering the Um, only million man really exactly exactly uh but uh i had 12 minutes to uh heal the world of racial uh tension so here we go again yeah, I guess it's you. You know, I guess it didn't take permanently. Ar, no, uh, I, I I have to review my message. You know, <laughs>
1: let's get into some of that really controversial stuff because you're um, you're somebody whom I greatly look up to. You've got a very interesting background. You were uh, a, a Muslim back in the '70s before you got saved. Um, you come from a, a mixed race, if that's a proper term. You're you're half Central American, half black. And you, you grew up in uh, in New York at a time when a lot of racial upheaval was going on. And, and as a non-Christian, what you ended up doing was throwing your, your hat in with the, the nation of Islam and, and then gotten saved. I mean, tell us a little bit about that, because I want to set that kind of up as we get into the Georgia voting law. What you think of the George Floyd um, case that's going on, where we need to go in this country Um especially as Christian men, is to, to bring about healing on this racial issue, which to me, it just seems so terribly immature. Uh, yeah, you and I, I, I talked about this.
2: Yeah, I, I think what the question you're asking is so important because if there's anything we need in our nation today, it's humility uh, and empathy. And you can't really empathize unless you understand the context and history that surrounds an individual, a group of people, a community or even a nation uh, as a whole. So I think that's the important question uh, that that we have to ask, you know, what's what's the context? What's the history? Um, You know, Dr. King in his final book, uh, it was entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? But in the book, he asked three questions. His first question was, who are we? Then how did we get here? And then where do we go from here? And that begs an exploration of history and context. So personally, I was born in Panama and uh, my father was a white Spaniard. My mother, a uh, black woman, descendant of Africans who came uh, to the Caribbean, uh, came to Panama. They were actually brought to the Caribbean uh, through slavery, the slave trade. Uh, But, you know, came to Panama to get work on the Canal Zone. So, uh, you know, I had mixed parentage. My father, unfortunately, uh, abandoned me, you know, uh, from my birth. And, um, you know, uh, it was a tough first four years of my life and my mother's life because uh, she was left in a lot of despair and hurt and anguish. She uh, was a gold medalist and silver medalist for the Olympics. She ran track. She was uh, had a full scholarship to come to the United States to study at Hel- Helsinki. And um, additionally, you know, she uh, uh, lost it all when she got pregnant with me. You know, being a good uh, uh, in Christian influence woman, you know, abortion was not on the table. So she decided to keep me. And sure enough, you know, she had to be removed from the Olympic team. And um, it was it was public because she was a public figure. So it left her in, in a place of deep pain and anguish and then the rejection by my father. So when I was four years old, um, she put money together. My uncles put money, her uncles put money together and sent to the United States to make a new start. And we ended up in bedside Brooklyn. <laughs> and that's where we started, you know, our American journey. So I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, Northeast, New York City, uh, in the late 50s and the 60s. So I was part of that 60s uh, revolution or revolutions, because every revolution imaginable was taking place yeah, in right. the 1960s. You know, spiritual, cultural, social, political, racial, you know, the civil rights movement, all of that was going on. And growing up without a father, you know, the streets and relationships in the streets, because my mother worked two jobs. I was a latchkey kid. Uh, the latch never worked because I was always out on the street. And, you know, she that's where I grew up. And that's where I was socialized. That's where I was informed. Uh, that's where my worldview began to develop. The church was a part of that. Not in the sense that it is now, because the church was an institution for me that allowed me to play uh, CYO ball for the city. You know, (laughs) I had to be part of the Methodist Church. So, you know, um, it was part of my journey. I was raised Catholic. So I went to the Catholic Church uh, as part of, you know, our family practice. Uh, and the Lutheran and Methodist Church and the Baptist Church uh, were conveniences, whether it was a summer day camp program uh, to, to play CYO ball, all those things came into play. But I was very socially conscious at that time, and the circles that I ran in were socially conscious. Uh, and it was amplified because I became part of the desegregation program in the continuity of Brown versus the Board of Education. So uh, we were bused from Brooklyn out to white schools in Queens. So I grew up in both contexts and developed relationships in both contexts, you know, and understood the two different realities that existed. So that was my upbringing. And then you had the influences of icons in in our neighborhood like Malcolm and Dr. King, and most of us chose Malcolm because we really were too young and immature to appreciate and understand the power of nonviolent action and the power of appealing to the conscience of a nation to affect change, you know? So we bought into the philosophy that, you know, it's only going to take uh, violent action, aggressive action. And that was summed up in the person of Malcolm. So the Nation of Islam provided order, discipline, strength, uh, somewhat of a a pseudo or surrogate father type figure uh, within the nation. And by the time I got to high school, I was I was actively engaged in protests and marches and bringing uh, uh, African-American history into our school system because Uh, You know, you sit in a history class and the majority of the class is relating to the figures in the book. And me, I felt like an outsider, you know, because there was no one in the book, (laughs) you know, that looked like me. So I felt like an observer of American history, not a participant in American history. And I knew because we made sure that we studied history on our own that there, we were a part of that history, you know, black history is American history. So, you know, we protested, you know, some of it turned into rioting, et cetera, but we brought uh, African-American studies into our high school. And that was my first taste of activism. And then going into the nation of Islam for five years, uh, it it was, the nation must be understood more so, not as a religion, uh, not as the Muslim religion, even though, Uh, It it incorporates Islam. Uh, The nation must be understood as a protest movement against the failure of the white Christian church in America to deal with the socioeconomic plight of blacks in this country. So that's how it has to be understood. So you'll, you'll, you'll understand why it has a little bit of Christianity in it, a little bit of Islam in it, a little Jehovah Witness in it. You know, so it's a mixture of things. That was a reaction uh, to that failure. How did
1: you get saved?
2: Wow. You know, look, uh, from an early age, I had this hunger for God. Somehow, intuitively, I, I knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. So when I found one, I would find the other. And I wrestled with the big questions. I was always a reader. I, I read the encyclopedias for fun. My mother bought me, you know, <laughs> really? that was my, you know, I did. So I wasn't playing ball on the court, you know, or, or, or hanging out in the park, shooting CeeLo. Uh, I don't, do I have to explain what CeeLo is? <laughs> no, what is CeeLo? That's, 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 that's rolling the dice, but with, with three dice back in the, back in those days. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. We used to bust um, people for that in LA. I didn't know yeah, what it was. Uh, yeah. We didn't shoot crap. We, we shot CeeLo, but, um, you know, I was still a reader, and I explored books. Books were my best friends, and I, I read about philosophy and, and religion. And then, when I went into martial arts, it, you know, it introduced me to uh, uh, Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies. So I was searching. I was hungry. I wanted to know, and that continued. And in the in those five years from 1970 to 1975. Uh, which January 11th is when I when I gave my life to Christ, uh, I was still searching, still looking, still reading, still pursuing, even while I was with the Nation of Islam. And there were two incidents, uh, oddly enough, that took place that, you know, was were, were undeniably God. In 1971, my wife and I, then she was my my girlfriend. We were walking down a street in Brooklyn and two elderly women dressed in in, in white (laughs) came up to her, actually, and uh, called her aside from me and started to engage in a conversation. You know, we were raised to respect our elders. So, you know, I didn't I didn't I didn't touch that. Uh, So I just watched, you know, I listened and um when she finished, she came back to me and I said, you know, well, what was all that about? And she said, well, they, they asked me if I loved you. And of course, I wanted to know what she, what she told them. I said, what, what did you say? So she said, I, I said, yes. And then she said that they asked her, are you ready for what God has for him? And God, to understand, I was not a Christian. Um, I was not, aware of spiritual things you know I, I, it was just not my vocabulary not my understanding not my world so again i asked her, well you know what was your reply she said i told him yes i'm ready so we 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 walked on down the street and she looked at me she says you know that was crazy i said yeah let's go back and ask them what that was all about and when we turn around they were gone and there was no way that these two old ladies could travel that fast you know, these are things that wow. uh, that I share. I don't have answers for, um, but that was very real. And that was 1971. 1972, my wife and I got married. And then in 73, her aunt, who was a minister in the Methodist church, called and said, you know, tell your husband, I need to see him. And she's one of those matriarchs of, of my wife's family. So if she called, you know, you went, there was no, mm-hmm. there was no argument, mm-hmm. no discussion. Uh, so I went to her home and, you know, she was old fashioned. Her husband had died uh, early on and she lived a, a chaste life in the faith. So she had me kneel down before her she put some stuff on my forehead and I had a big Afro back in those days. You know, <laughs> So she put her hand on my Afro because uh, when I got back home, my wife said, I can see her palm print in your fro. I said, Yeah. she put her hand on my head, put some stuff on my forehead and she prayed for me. And when she was finished, I said, that's it. She said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I've got to anoint you for something. I had no understanding of that language. But it was just out of my respect for her that I cooperated. So when I got back, my wife asked me details. I said, there was no details. It was quite simple. What took place? So that was 73, 74. Uh, I had a secretary come to work for me. It was a little Pentecostal woman. No idea what Pentecostal or Pentecostalism was born again. None of that. So she began to give me these tracks and talk to me about Jesus, but I've read the historical Jesus. I read so many uh, books about his life, his work, extra biblical material as well. I read the Bible as literature. Um, But she expressed a, a personal relationship with an anthropomorphic God that was difficult for me. And also Jesus, the white Jesus that I was exposed to, uh, he was the, the, the founder of the religion of the oppressor. So why would I want you know something like that? So for me, Christianity had a great value system, but in terms of embracing it, that was difficult for me. And I would go to the Catholic church and pray and light candles to try to figure it out. But she kept giving me these, these tracks. And what intrigued me was not her, her ability to respond. She was, she was a secretary. She was a, a very humble woman of humble means. And she could not answer some of the theological questions that I, I presented to her. In fact, her pastor told her to stop talking to me because eventually I would confuse her. But she kept at it. And it was her simple childlike faith in this Jesus that puzzled me. So she invited my wife and I to a meeting where a guy named Nicky Cruz was taking uh, was speaking and sharing his story. He, uh, I was attracted because, you know, he was a former leader of the Mau Mau gangs down in Fort Greene. I was aware of the gang and you know what they were about. And I said, OK, so I came. And in fact, it's funny, my wife and I were talking about this the other evening about that night. And she said she could hardly understand what he was saying. But she watched me, and she could see something was happening to me because he, you know, he had broken English. Nikki, (laughs) Nikki did his English was not all that great. Uh, So, uh, you know, he he spoke about drugs, Janis Joplin, and other things. But it was not what was happening between he and I. It was what was happening between myself and God. And two things, man, were birthed inside of me. Number one, that night, I'm the God that you're looking for, and I knew intuitively. It was Jesus. Um, How I understood that, you know, there was no explanation, but I just knew that this Jesus was the God that I'd been searching for. Secondly, I and my word are one. And that statement was important. And I and I and I grew in my understanding of that statement because the images of Jesus to me were not synonymous with my cultural identity. So to say that he and his word were one, it it dissolved all the iconography of Jesus that I'd been exposed to and brought me in touch with the word. And when I read John, which to this day is my favorite passage, John 1, 1, where it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right up to and the word became flesh. That blew me away. So I began to interact with Jesus as the word. The scripture became my focus of attention. And that night, January 11th, 1975, 8 p.m., Baptist Temple, downtown Brooklyn, I gave my life to Christ and it began a whole new journey trying to make sense of this because now Christianity had to explain for me the answers to the big questions. Who is God? which was summed up in the person of Jesus. But then what does it mean to be human? And what does it mean to live in this world? And those are the two questions that really captivated me on the journey ahead. So you were able to give up
1: a lifetime at that point of a certain perspective to the point where you thought Jesus led the religion of the oppressor the Holy Spirit in you was able to wake you up to the truth of who he was, which, of course, wasn't a white man's God. He was God of all people. And the white man narrative really was a cultural construct, not um, from the Bible. And we still find ourselves 45 years later trying to um, understand what that means in so many ways. And you've been at the forefront of that. I mean, I remember after 9-11, you prayed in in New York, and and you got a lot of criticism because you shared a stage with a Muslim imam, wasn't that wasn't that the case? Yeah, yeah. There's no end yeah. to to the what we'll criticize each other for. I, and I think about your journey and how we need to put ourselves into other people's shoes. I used to when I was a cop in L.A. The uh, Nation of Islam Temple was there at uh, oh gosh, I can't. I think it was 54th and Western. I can't remember exactly now, but. Um, outside they used to stand there in their bow ties and sell their bean pies and their little newspaper thing you know and i would stop and i would uh talk to the guy about christ here i was in a black and white in uniform my partner would be like dude harrison really again
2: you know i'd stop (laughs) and
1: i'd pay a dollar and i'd get their newspaper and the newspaper would say that george bush you know the the elder was satan and that you know the lapd was had these squads where we would drag black men out and murder them and i'd Never, I didn't know where these squads were. I'd never seen one of these squads before. But, you know, I'd read through the paper and I'd engage these guys in conversation because I want to know, well, why do you think the way you do? And it was very interesting. Um, so w- with all that, AR, um, let's jump into kind of the, the current issues of the day and then apply them to the church. But let's talk about the Georgia voting law. I mean, um, it seems like there's, there's a constant every couple of months, there's another thing that happens where sides are drawn and pitted against each other and baseball jumps in and then takes out the the minor league or the, the the major league all-star game and they move it to colorado and it's been pointed out that it's ironic that in the name of racial justice they pulled out of mostly black atlanta and went to mostly white colorado what are we supposed to think about that uh what what do you think because you have a very unique perspective for many different ways about the Georgia law? Is that something that we should support? Was that a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Because I don't really know.
2: I, you know look, uh, American politics uh, has exploited race, both by Democrats and Republicans, in order to achieve their political ambitions. So what's happening in Georgia is no surprise. Uh, you know, voting rights goes back to Emancipation Proclamation the, and, and the first Civil Rights Act of, 19, uh, of 1867, not 1964. You know, um, so disenfranchisement of people groups is part of American history. But I think that it, it, it emerged uh, with the Obama uh, election because both Democrats and Republicans agree that it was because of the higher voter turnout that Barack Obama won the first time and the second time. Whether that's fully true, you know, that's still debatable. Yes, we can show that there is Uh, There were more people voting. We see that with the most recent election with Donald Trump and and, and Joe Biden. So I can I can buy into that high voter turnout. But then they began to examine, okay, where were those higher voter turnouts? And, you know, uh, both Democrats and Republicans looked at communities of color because where the claim for voter fraud uh, was placed, all right, was primarily in communities with high populations of African-Americans and Detroit, Latinos. Atlanta, Philadelphia.
1: Those were the three cities. Yeah. Right?
2: You know, I, so so that's that's a reality. And and I blame both political parties because it's like, you know, our president, God bless him. And I respect the office. Um, you know, he talked about this new law is going to uh, force uh, 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 polling places to close at 5 p.m., that's the law already. That's that's already the law. The law says that polling places close at 5 p.m. and they can be extended to 7 p.m. So this law is not going to bring something new. But, you know, this is a kind of disinformation and misinformation that goes out there to support one side over the other. I think that we have to be careful when of our motivations when we begin to qualify in a, an extreme way who can vote and who can't vote. I think each vote should be legitimate, but we have to be careful when we put undue burden on certain community because that is reminiscent of the poll tax and all of the other things that were put in place when African-Americans were emancipated and then allowed to get into the voting process here in the United States. So, you know, there are those who know the history and say, well, wait a minute, what are we doing here? So both political parties will redraw districts and, and change lines and You know, so that's why I'm careful. I I will tell you, I was a Republican for many, many years. I'm still a conservative. I I have conservative values. You know, I believe in limited government, limited taxation. I believe in personal responsibility uh, and and personal development. I believe in free free enterprise that uh, is conscious of the common good. So these are certain values that I still hold. But I've just gotten so fed up with both parties. You know, and and the use of race by both parties, the exploitation. You know, I will tell you at the end of the day, for me, Washington, D.C. is more racially and political, politically divided than the country. I think we the people, (laughs) we the people are less divided than, you know, our elected officials are. Mm -hmm. And we're not at each other's throat the way our politicians are. And then you have that exacerbated by media, who will present politics as entertainment, and 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 spin, uh, you know, uh, politics in, in, with melodrama, at the sacrifice of of the facts. So you know the public is, is is weary of all of this stuff. And then you have the culture, if I may, uh, a culture of entertainment. Where we we want our news as entertainment, we want our politics as entertainment, and we even want our spirituality as entertainment, forcing preachers to become performers now. you know, and entertainment is amusement. it's It's diversion, you know, that 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 gives you a temporary pause from reality that you still have to go back to uh, and deal with. So, you know, we're in a spiritual and moral crisis in our nation, and I think that's why you take Promise Keepers, you know, uh, and we're, we're a very diverse group on that board of directors, and, I, and, I, and I'm grateful to be a part of it once again. And, you know, we're on different sides of, 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 of different situations, and I think that's healthy. I think a two-party system is important to the American system, right? So we have different points of view. I think diversity in a board like Promise Keepers is important as we seek to regain that that momentum that the 1990s gave us on issues of reconciliation, whether it was spiritual or racial reconciliation. You know, something happened along the way, and here we are. So uh, I have to put blame on both sides, both political parties the dog whistling on both sides and we the people become the victims of it you know and those who don't do their homework you know uh, a friend of mine dr ben carson was speaking at um you know a, a particular event and and he brought up the fact that our electoral system is designed for an educated electorate and unfortunately the masses are being informed and educated by entertainment, media, you know, and spin. So how can they make reasonable choices at the voting booth? A lot of it is driven by emotion or party loyalty, you know? So it's, 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 it's a strange time that we're in.
1: Yeah, it's funny when I asked you to come on the board of Promise Keepers, um, you said, are you sure? Are you sure you want that blowback? Um, But but my and I told you that my thing with being on the board of promise keepers was humility, 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 humility um, is the outward expression of a man who's in love with Jesus Christ. And so Hmm. when you look at Senator James Langford from Oklahoma, who's very conservative, Baptist minister, uh, conservative politically, you look at Sam Rodriguez you look at Pastor Donald Bergs, who you know called me and last July and said, "Ken, I just don't know who to vote for." I mean, I know you're pro-life, and I'm I'm very pro-life, but gosh. I and mean, he kind of brought up the issues, and so you get all of us in a room. Chad Hennings, um, we don't all agree, and and yet you look at how well we've operated as a board. We are as one. We are brothers, uh, and yet even um politically wouldn't necessarily always be on the same page this is how the church needs to operate and i'm really encouraged by the supernatural leading the lord to put that board together such godly humble strong strong men and i mean you and sam don't agree on just about anything (laughs)
2: we (laughs) do you are brothers i love spanish food man (laughs) uh I'm on man. I'm on with the rice and beans and and the and, and the and the sweet planting. What we call maduro. He's Puerto yeah. Rican. You're Panamanian.
1: I mean, there's nothing. I mean, that's this is all.
2: But, uh, but you know, look. I, you know, I, we we especially as a church, um, the identity crisis is common to all human beings. And how we resolve that identity crisis is critical. And if we ever resolve it as a person, because people go their whole lives and never resolve that crisis. So it affects their, low, their, their self-esteem, uh, their relationships with others. Uh, we bring, as Christianity, a transcendent identity. We go back to the Imago Day, We go back to the image of God that is stamped on every human being. From the moment of conception, I am pro-life in the womb and out of the womb, not, you know, not just in the womb. I am pro-life out of the womb, too, because too often we can be so pro-life in the womb and then forget our responsibility once that child comes out of the womb and has to navigate Amen. this world in which we live. Um, so, you know, uh, that Imago Day is 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 a, a status conferred by God upon every human being at the moment of conception. So it's not based on education, money, uh, relationships, uh, pedigree. No, it is a status that's conferred upon every human being. And therein lies the life and dignity of the human's person which should be foundational to how we build our society and how we understand each other and relate to each other. That's why that question, what does it mean to be human, was a critical question to me. Because in our country at one time, blacks were were not human at all. Then we were three-fifths human. And then when we when we were declared human, we weren't treated as human beings. You know, so that is where it begins. And we begin our relationship with a transcendent identity in Christ, especially, but who is the express image of God, right? And we build our relationships around that central understanding of human identity.
0: Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone, For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org.
3: Promise Keepers is back, and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ. Join us this July at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime, and discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. And we have a special offer available only in the month of June. Get $20 off your admission ticket by using the promo code OTE20. That's $20 off with the promo code OTE20. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer.
1: Talking to Dr. Ar Bernard, who uh, Promise Keepers board member, one of the great speakers in the '90s, who will be a speaker again at our inaugural re-launch. Ar, you know, we talk about being created in the image of God, uh, which is so important. But of course, if we're at proper understanding, we have to understand what is the image of God. And I feel like we've really gotten it wrong in so many ways. I feel like we don't really know who Christ is, and as these lines get divided so much. It's easy for people to be lazy and to just stay in their in their little tribe and there's lots of little tribes all over and you talked about how both political parties are exploiting and this coming from i I'm a very conservative you're very conservative so we're not we're not trying to you know go all crazy here but yet at the same time we realize both political parties are exploiting people along every possible line we can be and what we're saying is, we have got to be unified in our identity as, as children of God, created in the image of, of God and, and be Christ-like. But in order to do that, we have to know who Christ is. And I feel like we have, we're teaching an apostate Christ right now that the Jesus people think they know isn't really Jesus. It's an idol named Jesus.
2: Well, you know, I look I, the image of God, and and that that passage in, in in Genesis where it says God created us in His image and is like us, it, it it means that we are to be imagers of God, reflections like Jesus. Hebrews, you know, uh, chapter one, verse three, He is the express image of His radiant glory. You know, uh, and that's what we were intended to be—to image God. In, in, in our work, in our relationships, in, in our play, in everything that we do, uh, we are to image God. How do we know what the image of God is? What does God look like? And that's where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So now we understand that the statement is simple, but the idea of imaging God is quite complex, because when you study the life of Jesus and his interactions with people, those in power, those not in power, those, you know, uh, with different ideas about life, you know, you, you examine it carefully, you say, wow, there, there's a lot to this. It, it, it takes time, but I can gather that God is love, God is life, God is light, God is justice, you know, God is mercy, God is providence. You know, I can begin to extract these things from my observations. And, you know, this is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1. He said that the, that the invisible things of God can be clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal Godhead. So there is what we can study of creation as a reflection of the invisible God and come to some very important conclusions uh, uh, about him and about ourselves, about each other. You know, it's really
1: important. You said something uh, earlier about when you were talking about your salvation story, about how you had certain preconceived notions. Um, and then you had to give those up in order to see Christ as he really was. And I was thinking this morning, you know, I was raised by a grandmother who was this really major health nut before there were health nuts. And and she would walk we, everywhere. she She went everywhere. In her 80s, she would go on 15 mile hikes. And when I was a little boy, that's how it went. We went to the grocery store. We walked. We went to the park. We walked. And so now that I'm old, <laughs> I walk <laughs> You're everywhere.
2: Old. That makes me ancient, man. Don't call <laughs> yourself old.
1: <laughs> but I walk everywhere. And so you know, this morning I walked here. So I'm at the Museum of the Bible right now and I'm staying in Georgetown. It's about a four mile walk. And, and I walked here and people thought, are you mad? Are you crazy? And I, and I remember thinking, well, I'd be crazy not to walk here. It's the height of the cherry blossom season. The cherry blossoms are all out, they're white, and they're just turning pink, and the tulips are all out. And I got to walk here past all of our great monuments, the Washington Monument, looking at the tulips. What kind of mad mad wouldn't walk on a morning light today, right? The point is, the reason I see it that, that way is I was raised that way for, as a little boy, that I'd rather walk someplace to get in a, in a disgusting cab and have to, you know, breathe in disinfectant for 15 minutes <laughs> to get here, right? I mean, I had one, I had one choice or the other. How we're raised, how we are, 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 the ideas put in our head as young people, they they grow in us and those, there's good ideas and there's bad ideas. But in order for us to really follow the footsteps of Christ, to be like him, we must die to self and constantly ask the Lord, pull out, show me what's wrong in me. Show me where I have prejudices that I didn't know were there. One of the problems that we're seeing in the church today is a lot of people are holding on to this idea of the Christian right, and then to them, it's in scripture. Well, you got to know what's in God's word because God didn't write His word to 2021 Republicans, it, it, it was the all truth for all people of all time. And so many of the ideas that we hold on to, we've got to learn to get let go, and those can be painful. I, I've had to, it, you know, you've caused me to expand my mind greatly, and we talk all the time. We were on the phone night before last for two hours or an hour and a half or something. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we start talking and we can't, we can't shut up. And I love to, to absorb because your experience and how you were raised was so vastly different than mine. I mean, it couldn't be further apart. You were in New York, big city, mixed race. I was rural Oregon white raised by an ex cop. I mean, we you talk about different experiences and yet here we are sitting on the same board completely together as brothers in Christ going down this promise keeper's road. And so it goes to show the unification that can happen in Christ when we let go of what we think we know and see what the only truth I know is what's in God's word. If it's not in God's word, then I don't know that I know that I know that it's true. So if somebody says to me uh, an idea that challenges my way of thinking, I need to be willing to say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to always think I'm wrong, unless... It's in scripture. Because if if someone says, you know, you weren't created in the image of God, I can say, No, that's a lie. I was created in the image of God. If someone says you can earn your salvation, no, I can't earn my salvation. I am a sinner saved by God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So other than that though, we we all have to open up our minds and learn from each other. And I appreciate that. You know, you're older than me. You have different experiences. You've been at the top of of, of public uh, Christian leadership for many years. You're a very powerful man in the city of New York. I mean, ain't nobody running for mayor in New York unless they at least come and, and, and visit with you first. <laughs> and yet you're That's willing to learn. I'm my for time me.
2: right now. By the way, <laughs> so bad, man. you
1: probably have a procession outside your door right now, going uh,
2: uh, Zoom meetings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I keep telling you, if you just run for
1: mayor, then we wouldn't have these problems. We'd, you'd be you back as mayor.
2: You know, in 2013. I was I was I was approached by the Republican Party um, with that idea, and I'm never going to limit what God wants for my life and how He feels the best way to use me and my gifts. Right, so I will never shut something out. So I just kept an open mind to it. And uh, on January the fifth or the sixth, uh, the Daily News wrote an article that, um, I was contemplating a run and it upset everything because those who were already intended to run were now concerned. So I got calls from some of the candidates saying, are you really getting in? I said, I don't know. I said, you know, we're looking at this and, you know, within four months I was the front runner without ever announcing that I was going to run. And of course it came time to declare, you know, how much money you have for your campaign and all of that. Uh, but I knew that this was not something that God had for me. I'm in a very, someone said to me, he said, you can, you can, you can be king or be a king maker. I said, Oh, that's interesting way to look at it. And I said, well, let me step back and see if there's you know greater influence that I could have uh, and the gifts that God's given me. So, uh, I stepped away. You know, some of my congregants were concerned. Fifty percent of them said, "Yeah, it's the will of God. Go for it. We need <laughs> we need integrity uh, in in government." And then the other fifty said, "It's the it's a lie from Satan. You better not do it." <laughs> yeah, but it comes with a free house, which is cool. Uh, well, you know, I will ta- You know, I, unfortunately, politics has become so ugly, and and nothing off limits. I've got a beautiful family. I've got a beautiful congregation that I invested the last 42 years of my life building and sacrificing for and to make them targets, you know, for some political ambition. That's that's not me. I just that just didn't sit right with me. And I will tell you, you know, sometimes the Lord will allow opportunities to come your way uh, just to test your value system just to challenge your priorities. And I believe strongly that that was one of those moments where, you know, my value system was being tested, my priorities were being tested. And I look back and see what God has done since then. It's like, wow, okay, you know, I passed that test. (laughs) But look, and, and I say, there are some individuals that God has called into political office, Christians. That God has called them to serve in that arena of public service, you know, at different levels. And, and I think that's so necessary. That's so important. And I pray for them.
1: They're just not named Ayer Bernard or Ken Harrison. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs>
2: that's right. <laughs> we,
1: we only have a few minutes left and I, and I didn't get to something that I really wanted to. And so if you can, in, in kind of a shorter time, we were talking about d- dividing up uh, along lines of people being used it seems to me one of the ways we're being used right now is this COVID crisis. And I see a lot of conservative men refusing to wear masks, you know, uh, being very defiant. And they think that they're standing for freedom or something. And here you are as a guy who very came close to very much dying from COVID. And you had a horrific experience. And as you described it to me, I was like, man, I I wouldn't want to go through that. How has that affected you? And what do you say to guys that are just saying, yeah, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm going to go in and in the name of Jesus. I'm going to tell everybody to go pound sand.
2: Well, I, I, in the name of Jesus, I think we better be careful when we make God an accomplice to some of the things <laughs> that we uh, decide to do That's on a, our well own, put. you know, well put. <laughs> we have to be careful there. Uh, you know, along with the life and dignity of the human person is also another Christian social ethic. And that is the common good. We can debate about what that common good looks like, what policies and legislation and systems and structures should be in place to to serve the common good. But if we think about the common good, then it takes us out of our selfishness. So there are certain times that you do things not only for yourself, but for the greater good for others. You know, so wearing a mask helps to, It de- Club on, look, absolutely, you know, uh, disease can be transferred through air, uh, you know, through droplets. We know this. That's not new to us. And wearing a mask does, you know, keep that from spraying out. It's true. So if if it makes my neighbor feel more protected, even though I feel I don't need it, then for the sake of the common good, I'm willing to adjust, I'm willing to participate in that way for the good of my neighbor. And that's summed up, uh, Ken, in one word, love. Because love is a desire to benefit others at the expense of self. Love is sacrificial, it's a decision. It's not centered in the emotions, it's centered in the will. So I love because I choose and how I love, which is an action, All right. It's expressed in what I do and how I do things. How I love my neighbor is being conscious of my neighbor's good. And whatever I can do to cooperate, if it's not extreme, if it's not breaking boundaries, breaking God's law, then I can cooperate. But look, America is based upon a declaration of freedom, a declaration of liberty. We are a nation that thinks in terms of rights. My rights are being violated, you know, and if you know anything about marriage, all right, which is the which is the one institution that God has used to describe his relationship with his people, that there are some times in a marriage and I've been my wife and I'll be married next year for 50 years. OK, so there are times in a marriage where it doesn't matter who's right. It's a matter of. The, the, the health of the relationship, the overall vision of the relationship and love. And there's sometimes when you sacrifice your right for the greater good of the marriage union again and again, you know. So what is true there is, is true in society. Yes, we may have rights, but sometimes we sacrifice those rights for greater good.
1: And that's well said. You should be a preacher.
2: <laughs> you think?
1: <laughs> I remember my uncle telling me when I was getting married, he said, Ken, there are going to come times when you're going to have to make a choice. Do I want to be right or do I want to be happy?
2: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Better said than the way I said it.
1: <laughs> hey, AR, I find you to be one of, and I'm not just one of the great wise leaders of the church, but also a great preacher. And where can people go? to download your sermons, to to check in on what you're doing and and to read what you've been putting out?
2: Wow. You know, we just launched something called ARB TV, and that is loaded with uh, my material. Uh, They even have something called uh, AR Bernard Classics where I'm, I'm wearing, I'm still wearing my bow tie. Nice. <laughs> I didn't lose the bow tie right away. I kept Dude, wearing You're not those. selling
1: bean pies though, are
2: you? Uh, no, 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 no more bean pies. <laughs> but, but you, you know, we, that's a whole nother conversation we have to have about economics and, and, and self-reliance and creativity and innovation, you know, which, which is so important to American society. Uh, And that's why free enterprise system, when understood and compassionate capitalism, responsible capitalism, uh, works, you know. Um, So I understand where we are and our concerns about socialism. And that's not that's not new. Ever since the New Deal, we've had some very serious concerns since then uh, about the influence of socialistic ideas. Um, You know, we've been a, a two system economy. Uh, but I think that God created us with certain gift talents and abilities, and we have to have room to explore them and then be able to translate them into value in the marketplace. I think that's just so, so important, you know, and, uh, here I am rambling and <laughs> did, did I lose the question, the original question? Uh, it's,
1: you know, it, it, actually what you're saying is very important. And, uh, and I have said, there are a couple of guests that we'll have to have on many times. John Bevere, one of them. Um, you are another one of those that, that w- we'll need to have many different conversations because there's so much to cover and the things that you the things that John has to say from different aspects are so important that we're not going to cover them all in a 45 to an hour minute podcast so just that's a good a good prelude to the next time and uh, man we are looking forward to seeing what you have to say at AT&T Stadium on July 16th and 17th that's going to be amazing
2: well, I'm looking forward to being there. And Ken, man, let me encourage you as, as uh, the leader of Promise Keepers. Uh, it is a ministry. It's a corporation. But it's a movement. It's a movement that seeks to change the world one man at a time. And when you change the hearts of men, you change the hearts of the family, you change the heart of a society. And that's so, so important. So thank you for what you're doing, man. And, and taking the heat, too, because, you know, this is not popular <laughs> yeah. Men's ministry is not popular. It's it's difficult. First of all, you know, women's ministry tends to be a lot easier. Men's ministry is difficult. First of all, but it's also not popular in a time where we are trying to uh, redefine identity, uh, especially when it comes to gender. So you're in my prayers, brother.
1: (laughs) I need to pay. I gotta say one thing as we close out. Uh, we got a check yesterday that someone sent me a picture of and a check was for $10, but on the memo line, they wrote, keep going. And it was so impactful to our staff that they sent it out to the whole leadership. And there was something in it just felt like a message from the Lord. So whoever sent, I don't, I don't remember the name, but whoever sent that 10 bucks uh, and a message, you, you have no idea. You think, Oh, I'm just some guy living in Oshkosh, Wisconsin or something. And, Uh, It's only 10 bucks. I'll tell you, man, you never know when an encouraging word might really uh, be nourishing to the soul of somebody. And all of our leadership team, yesterday just saw that little picture keep going. And it was like, thank
2: you. Yeah, it is special, man. I I experienced the same thing when a woman listening to the radio show that I'm on in another state and she sends five dollars. And, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but the heart behind that. And like you, I discern that as God you know, that God's divine hand sending me a message personally. It's humbling. Thanks
1: for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting and I wanna tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.
2: This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today.